GCS podcast, The Gemable Mechanisms. I'm Brian Runtzman. Today I'm speaking to Amanda Brock. Uh, Amanda is the CEO of Open UK. Um, so obviously has a lot to say about open source software. Uh, and that's what we're going to be speaking to a little bit about today, as well as all sorts of other information on making IT good for society. So first of all, hello, Amanda. Hi, Brian, and thank you for having me. Uh, no problem at all. So uh, first of all, just tell us about a little bit about Open UK. How, how long have you been with them? That's fairly new. Am, am I right? You're absolutely right. Um, we have an event later today celebrating our first birthday, and we are, in this guise, a year and two days old. Okay. Okay. So what's the aims of, of Open UK? So our, our remit, our vision is to develop and sustain UK leadership in open technology, a little wider than the open source you mentioned in your intro. We actually look at uh, open technology, which we've defined as the three opens, being open source software, open hardware and open data. Okay, that sounds interesting. Now, that's got some inherent sort of um, security and ethical implications that, um, you know, we're very big on those sort of discussions at BCS. So, Open source software has got a very well-established uh, model now. It's been going for a long time. Uh, I, I interviewed Linus Torvalds a few years ago and had a very interesting chat with him about uh, that sort of ego. You were lucky. He doesn't do a yeah. lot of that. No, no. He, well, he got given an award, an award at um, an event in Cambridge uh, by um, partly by a BCS group. So I managed to invite my way in. And, uh, yeah, that's him. tricky. <laughs> yeah, but we managed it. So <laughs> quite some time ago now. Anyway, um, <laughs> But on open data and open hardware, um, perhaps a little bit more difficult. That, that doesn't seem quite as mature as a sort of an open concept. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. What we're seeing, we are, as far as we know, the first organization in the world that has formally defined open technology and said that that's what we're all about, bringing the three opens together. But we're actually seeing a gradual shift in the major open source organizations towards that. Obviously, open hardware, which is something that's really big in the UK versus most of the world, is something which is increasing dramatically. And there's obviously a blurring between where the software starts and finishes and the hardware starts and finishes. So it, it, you also see at the European Commission level the work they're doing, the study that they have coming out on open source at the end of January also includes open hardware. And you can't have failed to have seen over the last six months to a year, governments talking more and more about citizen data. I think that's something we've seen accelerated with the pandemic and the test and trace apps bringing um, citizen data into everybody's mind. But data is very much at the heart of all the technology business models these days, whether you're in a software or hardware basis. So it seemed to make sense to bring the three together and sort of take on the future face on. So what's your take on this idea of people having control over their data? This is something that's been discussed for quite a while now. It's a, it's a hand-wheelable phrase, isn't it? Everyone needs to control their own data. We haven't seen too much in the way of answering practical applications to help people do that. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. If I was doing predictions for next year and looking into my open crystal ball, I would say to expect to see more of that coming down the, the track. We have the UK's national data strategy, and I expect to see a focus when the, the consultation's over and the government comes back to us, I expect to see a focus on that. I think with Brexit, we'll also see a focus generally in the UK on data. Um, I assume we will not stray from GDPR. We'll try and get our... 
uh, we'll try and get our approval as an adequate nation for data to be transferred from Europe to. That's going to be important to us. Mm. I think each of us on a personal basis is going to be increasingly aware of what data is given and how it's used and probably have more and more control over the utilisation of that data and where it ends up. And one thing that always sort of bugs me personally, and, and I'd be interested in your take on this, is uh, when we have to approve um, terms and conditions. Um, so it, nearly every time I go onto my banking app, for example, I, I just have to approve an updated terms and conditions. Now that makes it very difficult to keep track on what data there, because you don't read it all, do you? Yeah, you're asking the wrong person. I was a lawyer for 25 years and I started uh, my tech career in the 90s in internet work uh, before it was even called dot coms and ended up with an ISP in 1999-2000. And I was one of the people who was amongst the first setting up the infrastructure in the UK of how we did that and making you scroll through and tick a box. And if I'm honest, uh, 20 odd years later, do I read those terms and conditions? No. Do I occasionally email them to myself? Yes, but only because I want to look at them if I'm doing something else around terms and conditions. Mm. So no, I don't think that's the right way to, to go about it. I, I know with GDPR, we saw a shift back almost to what we were doing 20 years ago with tick boxes that were you know, you're no longer pre-populating them, you're giving the individual the opportunity to do that. And I think we'll see increasingly simplistic ways for people to manage their data um, and hopefully more and more interoperability and openness around that. Because until we get that uh, transparency and control in the individual, you won't have trust. I think the two really go together. Okay, that's interesting. So just think about the, the concept of open source in general. So you, you've got the three opens. That's a, that's an interesting sort of kickoff for me because usually I just think about open source software. To be honest. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to credit John LeBan, one of my directors, came up with the three opens as a term. Yeah, that's not my like original thought. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like the title of the podcast to me anyway. So that's all, that's yeah. all nice and snappy. Um, where do you think we're falling down now and communicating the stuff to the outside world? I mean, you know, the general public don't necessarily need to know the, the concept of open source. Or yep. do you think they do? I think they do. And I think it's a gradual step. Um, it's very much why I was persuaded to get involved in Open UK. From a business perspective, I think we have seen one positive come out of the pandemic, and that's digital transformation. So the really reluctant amongst us who were dragging their heels were forced mm. through the last steps of transformation. And I think looking around today, those businesses, all companies understand that they are absolutely dependent on technology and that they probably are in fact technology companies whose products and services are either created, delivered or consumed using technology. Yeah. What I think they haven't realized yet is that they're all open source companies. Uh, you might think that's a little bit controversial, but they are. They're all working on using open source, particularly in this platform economy. Um, they yeah. probably don't understand anything like the value to their business that that open source is bringing. And I suspect that what we will now see is a gradual realization that they're not just tech companies, that some of this stuff they're using is open source and there's a whole lot of governance, et cetera, that goes with that. Mm. And that's partly why it will become Partly the fact that Open UK will be flagging it to people, but also partly that they'll go through this governance realisation. Um, and I think gradually you'll see that move from business through the consumer marketplace as people begin to understand it. And we're certainly pushing to encourage more digital skills 
open digital skills being taught to future generations and those reskilling. Yeah, I think it's really important that they get the right skills and many of those will be around open. So not just being taught Python, but being taught Python uh, and understanding that it's open source and what that means. In your view, is, is, does this go beyond, um, you know, we all, we all know that there's open source alternatives to Word and, and, and Excel and all that sort of thing. Do people understand that there's a lot of open source software in the sort of network infrastructure as well? Is that something you I don't think they do. And I think that's the mission that we are taking on for the UK is to really, we've got a huge number of people in the UK working in and around open, right? And they're mm. just not cohesive. And we're trying to bring them together because they all work globally at the moment on international projects, which is fantastic, but they don't know each other. So with that geographical focus, we're trying to magnify um, the, the presence that we have in open. And I think naturally that will start to create more noise about it, create more visibility. And I think that's when we'll see businesses uh, really understanding how much open they're using. And that networking or platform economy if you look at something like the CNCF landscape, there are hundreds of packages building that. And that mm. landscape is what creates your, your platform environment, your public cloud. Um, I think the, the amount of investment is in the billions and the valuations for those uh, projects and companies is in the trillions. And if you pull that together and really look at it, every single user of public cloud is benefiting somewhere from that. And their understanding of that is inevitable, I think. So um, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly on that, then the, the implication would be that um, if businesses are aren't fully aware of where open source might sit in their in their stack of mm -hmm. technologies, that means they probably haven't got the the open source skills within their teams to actually make full use of them. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And to to make the best use, not just full use, but to use it in the optimal way. And I think that's something that we will see increasing focus on over the next few years. It feels in many ways like the UK is a slow adopter. And I think maybe in the public sector, we had policies that were ahead of the curve. But our actual adoption was relatively low. Right. And you won't be surprised that in my position, I see a lot of what is happening around open in the UK. And it's really changing. Did you feel that organisations would be better um, suited to sort of cope with the kind of upsets we've had in the last year? Um, with their working practices, if there was more knowledge of, of open source co sort of concepts and working in, in mm -hmm. business? I think it's not just about understanding in, uh, the concepts. There was a really interesting survey done by Tidelift, an open source company in the Bay Area, who uh, offer a subscription model to tidy up a lot of the, the open source that you use and to, to package it up for you. But Tidelift do this survey and Donald Fisher, one of the founders has been writing about the, the last survey. And he has this interesting theory that you see the spikes in open. And it's probably more been historically in the US, but you see these spikes around recession and difficult financial times. You know, there's a, always a, a misunderstanding in the early stages that because open source doesn't come with the traditional royalty model it's free it's not we used to talk about total cost of ownership you don't pay for the software but you have to implement it you have to make sure it's maintained and does what you need it to do integrate it i think now in the platform economy there's less of that so a lot of the old business models don't work also for the open source companies but there is a, a cost and a value to enterprise in that platform space that you need to contribute back to 
uh, I think there's an opportunity for uh, many different companies to collaborate because they're all driving in the same direction. They all want the same outputs in their technology, even if they're not in the same sectors or verticals. You see that across the sectors. And there's a great opportunity to collaborate, to save costs, to invest in the technology that becomes more standard. And I think that's something that we're also seeing recognised at a government level. So we'll see more of that driven by um, government and regulators. So it's very much a sort of collaborative. It's not a sort of proprietary versus non-proprietary software or... I think those days are gone. You see companies like Microsoft, you know, t uh, 10, 15 years ago, Obama was describing open source to cancer. <laughs> Today, they're the biggest contributor to open source yeah. in the world. If you go by lines of code on GitHub. So I, I was just going to ask you about that specific thing, actually, whether whether you feel that that's just a valuable, positive thing all around, or, or is there a bit of just the co-opting being done so that we don't miss out on some aspect of the gravy train? I think it's a positive thing. And I like when you hear Microsoft telling their story that they are probably more honest than people would expect. Um, and maybe people don't always understand the journey that they've been on, but they will tell you that things have changed and that today they uh, are a huge open source company for three reasons. And the first is 10 years ago, the customers weren't asking for it and today they are. Right. And that shift, you know, that understanding that you're going to get better software and there's certain things that are way better by using open is an economic and business decision. Uh, the second one is very much around cloud. They have Azure. Azure to use in the public cloud is open source. Mm. And uh, if they want to be part of that, they have to not just take but give back. So they very much become part of that open source piece around public cloud. And then the third one, and I think the third one is probably the least economic, but the more in, the most interesting. So if we're looking at a world where everybody now has DevOps, everybody needs developers, everybody needs to hire software developers, Microsoft's third reason for open is that the best developers use it. Wow. What they look at, you mentioned Linus Torvalis, I, I think of it as the generation that grew up post the Linux kernel, post 89. They have grown up with open as a norm and they mm -hmm. expect open. So the best developers you're recruiting today expect to be able to work in a collaborative and open way using open methodologies. So if you want to attract them, you can't be sitting in this old old fashioned proprietary environment and methodologies. Yeah. Now, what about some sort of the, the newer technology areas? One thing we've spoken about, like a lot of people have in the recent uh, last couple of years is AI and machine learning. Yeah. And that there's, you know, problems with, with training data and um, do you think there's um, a stronger role for open source approaches to try and weed out some of the inherent biases in, in what's happening? Yeah, it's interesting. That's a specific point that we'll be raising with the government in our response to the national data strategy. Uh, they've just extended that from today to next week. And it's uh, interesting to see those biases. I mean, there are human biases and we, we've translated those into machines, as you yeah. well know. I think that the more open the data can be, the more we can share and the more we can collaborate and the more we can train that out of the AI, but it's yeah. not going to be a fast process. No, no, it, it looks a tricky one. The more I read about it, the less, the more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the same with a lot of things, right? <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> so what is, um, what's your sort of near-term goal uh, as an organization then, Amanda? Obviously you, you're trying to raise awareness of this three opens, which I'm, which I'm really liking already. In a practical sense, uh, how are you going about that? 
Yeah, um, you're going to find out that I like three. I can remember things in threes at my great age. Uh, we also work on three pillars. So we are focused. We started without this. We started, you know, a year ago, I was recruited to CEO, told to go off and raise my own salary, which I did. I brought in a board of 12 um, who are pretty much internationally recognized across open. So, you know, really solid people. And they came up with the vision, mission, purpose. And then I went off and operationally started lots of activities. And within six months, we realized that they fell into three pillars and they fall into community, legal and policy and learning. And I think that flows. You start with building this uh, cohesive and loud community that can make a noise and be heard about open and encourage the legal and policy piece, which is making sure that we're, we have the right laws in the UK, that our policies are driving to the right place to make the UK a great place to do open in. But also if you're somebody who is outward looking to do open from so that our laws allow for that collaboration on a global and international basis. And then the third piece, learning, is really what I've mentioned already. It's making sure that this workforce and the future workforces have the right open skills for the future. So not just focusing on digital skills, but open digital skills. We have quite a lot going on under each of those three pillars. Despite the pandemic and it being our first year, we achieved an amazing awards on the community side. We've just set up a supporter model where people can financially contribute to the organization on a monthly subscription, and that will allow them to vote in our board elections, which will start next autumn. And that's really important because that moves away from a, a group of open source people, open hardware people, open data people to a wider community who feel that they have ownership of the organization. So we've got there on the community side. On the legal and policy side, it was easy because we have some very well-known lawyers in the UK who specialize in that area. So it was easy to get a very quick credibility. We were recognized by May by the commission as the UK's actor around that. Um, you know, so that was great. Uh, I've already mentioned my great age. We had a meeting back in the days when you still had face-to-face -face meetings back in February. I remember, yeah. Yeah, do you remember? I just yeah. about remember. We looked around the table and we were all old. Maybe I don't want to remember. <laughs> Everybody was over 40 and we realized that wasn't on. So we set up a group called our Future Leaders Group and we now have a number of people around legal and policy. Increasingly, we're getting developers and business people getting involved and we're trying to train the next generation really to, to follow in our footsteps and take this over from us. And that involves us having weekly training sessions from world leading people in open, which everybody's welcome to attend on a Friday at noon. And they're also working on an, an interesting report. Uh, it's taken a little bit longer than we'd hoped, but that's the nature of 2020. Mm. We will have a report, I think, in January on the government procurement processes and terms. You're talking earlier about terms and conditions. Those poor mm. lawyers have actually had to read these at length and report back on them. And then the third bit, which is the bit that we've probably had most profile around is the learning piece. We're extremely lucky to have had the support last year or this year of Imogen Heap, the double Grammy award-winning singer who mm. I met about a decade ago when I helped her with a glove that she was working on. She was creating a software glove and I, I gave her some pro bono legal advice back then for the prototype. And uh, Imogen very kindly got involved this year as we used the Minimoo glove, which is a kid's version distributed by Pimeroni uh, that uses a micro bit, another British open hardware 
piece yeah. that involved there yeah. and we actually saw the glove uh put onto an open hardware license as part of the work we've done this year so we ran a, a kids competition had to pivot uh back in march because our plans were to bring children together across the uk they were all meant to be at red hats innovation labs in june and that wasn't going to happen no. and we spent the money instead on creating a course uh 10 animated lessons using the mini moo glove teaching digital skills all have an aspect of open in them and i can tell you that was sponsored by red hat um we then did a, a giveaway Huawei sponsored us to give away glove kits from Pimeroni, and we gave away over 3,000 of those to kids to participate in that, that uh, course, which we wrapped up into summer camp. But I can tell you that Red Hat have actually committed to sponsor us again next year. We're announcing that tonight, so I guess we get to do that before this goes out. Yeah. Um, and Red Hat are sponsoring both a second kids competition for Open UK, but also a second course, and we will do another camp next summer. So you're planning for the future there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no flies on us. I wonder if it might be an easier sell anyway, because, um, you know, with Raspberry Pis and trying to do things themselves mm -hmm. and scratch and all those sorts of things, where uh, the youngsters are a bit more used to the idea of not just proprietary as well. Yeah. But the thing is, they use it and nobody tells them what it means. Right. And nobody wants to listen to sort of people who've been through a war, right? And sometimes the open source folks make it sound like a war. Nobody wants to listen to that older generation going on about it. But there are ways of t telling stories and taking them on the journey so they understand. Um, you know, I've seen people who think oh, it's enough to put something into the public to make it open. And it's not. It has to have an open source license. That's really clear. Right. So, you know, teaching those good practices and allowing people the opportunity to understand the reasons for them is really important. And that's what we want to get across in the uh, the, the course that we're doing. Really interestingly, last year, and I think it's because of the glove, possibly because of Imogen being involved, um, she actually narrates the first lesson for us. I think that we had more girls than boys take part and yeah. more of the winners mm. were girls than boys. And I want to make sure that we keep that, you know, we didn't specifically target it. It just naturally happened. And I want to make sure that that happens again in 2021. But also we're really keen to try and find routes into kids who are digitally excluded and to yeah. make sure that when we're doing the giveaways, even although they may not find it as easy to access the adults who will lead them and help them, that we find ways into those communities. So if anybody listens to this and knows of those, please get in touch. Lovely. Um, you obviously read my outline, so I was about to ask you about diversity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, have you got what were you going to ask me? Is, is, is diversity better in, in the open source community generally? Do you have a feel for that at all? Obviously, that, that's a good start, right? Yeah, about. right. It's a really difficult one to answer. So I was at an awards thing last night where somebody quoted 17% of the tech sector are women. Yeah. That's and nice. I've seen figures that are as low as seven in mm -hmm. open source. And, you know, it's very publicly recorded. There's been lots of discussion of this. And Lindsay yeah. himself took a, a bit of time to reflect at one stage as a, a woman, I've not found it difficult. I've found that the very neurodiverse community that the open source community is has been very welcoming to me. The numbers aren't great. They won't change overnight. And it, I think it will take a generation to really change the face of it. 
But I also have a lot of hope when you, you look at an organization like Open UK and look at our board, look at our leadership team, look at the people who participate, and it is diverse. Yeah. Um, there's more work to be done on it, but we are diverse and I think we will just continue to be more and more. And that brings huge value. I mean, there's the, the aspect of needing the diversity of people who will be the end consumers of technologies to be the ones designing it. But also you just get these different viewpoints and often, you know, I'm quite determined, as you've probably picked up from this, I'll, I'll drive and go and get stuff and get want to get on with it. And I'll be stopped by people and I'll be stopped by people who are really diverse saying to me, have you thought about this? We should do it that way. What about, you know, what about X, Y, Z? And it's really interesting how much better things turn out when you've got that diversity of opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to ask you about just about the general concept of professionalism as well. So obviously one of the big things that we, we do here at BCS is talk about that professionalism piece in the context of, you know, in, in other important professions, medical profession, architecture, that sort of thing, people need to be properly chartered to practice. Now, we can't expect that for the over 1 million people that work in IT in this country, but this was quite an important aspect of things like ethical thinking and that sort of thing. So just wonder what, what your feeling was just about that. Yeah. I have quite strong views on this, actually. And these are personal. It's not something we've really discussed within Open UK. I think that coding is akin to speech. And I think that in the same ways you have freedom of speech, you should have freedom to code. And that that should be pretty unrestricted on a general basis. However, there's then a need for regulation And I think that regulation belongs in sectors. So being a doctor, you're not regulated about everything you do. You're regulated about how you practice medicine. And it's within the healthcare sector that you're regulated. So I think as a developer working in the healthcare sector, it would be reasonable for you to expect certain standards or certain practices to be followed. Mm. If you look at an organization like the Aperta Foundation in England, which uh, looks after projects that are open in the healthcare sector, they have an extra layer that we've helped them with in their governance, which then looks at the clinical side. So they have the normal, in fact, they're about to have open chain compliance. They have the normal sort of governance around their projects, and then they add this sectorial layer to it. And I think it's really important that we understand that because individual developers choosing to code should not be liable for others' use of that code in different contexts, Mm. nor, in my opinion, should they be restricted. We should never see... You know, it's like freedom of speech, freedom of writing. People should be able to express themselves with code, I think. Well, it is a, it is a language, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I tend to equate it to for people. It's just another way of it, of expressing. So that's why I get back to the freedom of speech. I know others don't agree that it's freedom of speech. They'll put it in different categories. But generally, I think amongst the lawyers, I know there is a consensus that you should be free to do that okay. and the regulation. And it's something we actually discussed The European Commission had a big two-day event um, just over a year ago, mid-November 2019, and it was a very progressive event. It was great to see a lot of attendees, and this specific topic came up. Um, It's recorded, and I ended up being the person that was allowed to say that piece, Um, and I think it's the, the best response I've ever had from a room full of developers or from the developers in the room, you know, in the, the way that I expressed it, and I think that is uh, 
a belief maybe that's generally held amongst a lot of the development community, at least in the open space? So um, I've got two more things I'd like to ask you. Sure. Um, first one is we've got a very broad range of members of BCS, right from students to mm-hmm. a large chunk working in IT now to academics. Um, if someone's been listening to this and thinking, oh, I, I need to get to, maybe I need to get a little bit of a career change going on, what would you recommend about getting involved a little bit more in open? Yeah, I think that that's the beauty of open is that anybody can get involved anywhere. So if you are a developer, you you know how to code, um, I would go, this is what I'm always being told to do, but I've never been brave enough to do, is to go and find a project and start finding bugs and fixing the bugs. And even if you feel a bit foolish at first because you're not getting it right, join that community and let them teach you because they will be receptive and they will generally not tell you you're an absolute idiot, but they will say, maybe you want to do that this way. And that's the best way to learn. And by its nature, it's community nature, you you will generally find that you are well received uh, as somebody wanting to join. It's certainly also at the non-coding level with Open UK, we are moving to have this supporter model and only those who are signed up as supporters will be able to vote, but that in no way stops anybody who wants to from participating in any of our projects. They're open to everyone. Lovely, thank you. And my final question is really about your inspirations. Who over the years, you've had a long career. uh, Thanks. I meant to say that, not you. <laughs> Just words back to you, he said hurriedly. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> Take a bigger hole. Yes. Yeah, that was terrible, wasn't it? Um, you've had a reasonably short career in IT, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder who just a quarter of a century. <laughs> just wonder who your inspirations have been, and 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 who you sort of drawn um, motivation from that sort of thing. I, I like to get that sense of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I've not, I'm not somebody who's had a lot of heroes. Um, I guess my dad was probably the person who inspired me most by. Actually, this is probably a good answer for you. I have another person I'll mention in a minute, but um, my dad is probably the person who inspired me most in that I grew up initially in a council estate until I was about 11. And I had a, a, an assisted place, as it was called back then, a scholarship into a private school that offered me a lot of opportunity. And I went on and uh, I, I have three different degrees from different countries and all of that was on scholarships and um, grants and things. I was very, very lucky. But it was my dad who told me that I could be anything I wanted to be, that I was smart and that, you know, I could just apply myself. And there was never this sense that by either being a girl or not having any money, which we didn't, Mm. that you that that could stop you. You know, if you were smart and you applied your brain, that was what counted because that was the, the way to get out and the way to change your life. And it's allowed me to have a very nice life. I see now often when I'm speaking to girls and, you know, I get wheeled along to some of these events and uh, get the opportunity to chat to them where I used to before everything closed down. <laughs> um, what I, I see a lot is when I talk to girls about technology, it's the ones whose dads, and I'm sad to say it's not their mums, and hopefully in the next few years that will change, but if their dads have encouraged them into technology, hmm. they are interested in learning about it. And particularly when I speak to young girls and they know what open source is, it's because their dad has been a community contributor or is in tech and knows about it. 
Um, so I think there is an obligation on dads to make sure, mums too, but, you know, to make sure that they're encouraging their daughters and not ever making them think that there's any difference. So for me, my inspiration was very much my dad. In terms of open source, I would say, and for some this will be controversial, Mark Shuttleworth, who was my founder and my employer for five years from the beginning of 2008 when I, I joined Canonical and set up the legal team there. Uh, he's not the easiest person in the world, but people who are entrepreneurial like Mark are never easy. He uh, is inspirational and visionary, to be quite honest. And as I say, you know, not always easy to be his lawyer. On the other hand, I, I couldn't have learned more or gained more passion from open source than I did from working for him. Lovely. That's really interesting. And it also seems to me that maybe there's an interesting social mobility story that you've, you've, you've had that we could perhaps talk about another time. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I would, I'm keen to encourage people to see that there is that opportunity. I think actually, sadly, it may be harder now than it was then, which is, is not how it should be. But uh, yeah, definitely happy to talk about that. Well, there's definitely grounds for conversation there, then, isn't it? Amanda, yeah. it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Um, Thank you I'm very happy. much for having me.